Hey folks, I'm Alex Dowd. And I'm Katie Reif. On the second installment of our four-part series on the films of Christopher Nolan, we're discussing his blockbuster Batman trilogy. We'll get into those films and their legacy and how they've held up today. Welcome to Film Club. All right, Dad. So today we're talking about what arguably is the greatest series of superhero films ever made, which is Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. So what's your favorite Batman, Dowd? Like out of all the people who have played him? Um, I would say that my favorite Batman might actually be Michael Keaton, to be honest. Um, really? How come? Well, he brings um, he brings a certain neurotic energy to Bruce Wayne himself. You know, I mean, like like uh, with Batman, you know, it's really a dual role. Obviously, you're playing Batman himself. His mm-hmm. his sort of uh, his his approach to the to the actual vigilante Batman is he has a slightly right. whis- whispery. His voice is a little uh, more whispery than the Bale version, obviously. Um, oh, but, we'll talk about that later, buddy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I've always liked uh, I've always liked Keaton's kind of uh, neurotic energy. He sort of comes across as somebody who um, has some, some social adjustment problems, which you, one would imagine that a, a billionaire who dresses up at a, as a bat at night would have those. So um, <laughs> there are aspects of the Burton films that almost feel to me like like a, a quirky romantic comedy when it's when mm-hmm. it's just when it's Wayne you know and I've always really yeah. liked that yeah that's funny because my favorite Batman doesn't really change who he is at all except for the outfit which is that ever since I was a little kid I've just always loved the Adam West Batman I love the TV series <laughs> I love how colorful and campy and silly it is and the bang pow and all the different villains and things like that I just always love that which is but which is not to say that I don't have an appreciation for the Christopher Nolan version of Batman, yeah. which is, you know, basically the exact opposite of the yeah. Adam West Batman. Well, as he was first introduced in Detective Comics in 1939, I'm sorry, I don't know the issue number. <laughs> um, I'm sure someone listening does. Uh, but Batman originally was a dark and brooding character, you know? Uh, he was, He's an orphan who's driven by the death of his parents to become the world's greatest detective. You see the death of his parents in the very first edition of Batman, but over the years, you know, as uh, comics change, you know, the, there was the different ages of comics, the gold and silver and things like that. That's not really something I have the range to talk about. But by the time you got to the mid-60s, you had Adam West Batman, which was a very silly version of the character. And I personally feel that subsequent film and TV adaptations do have a little bit of that silliness in them. Even the Burton Batman isn't, it's not based in reality the way that Christopher Nolan's mm. Batman is um, and uh, but also the arguable epitome of the campy Batman aesthetic is Joel Schumacher's Batman which has <laughs> the bat credit card <laughs> and Mr. Freeze saying ice puns and all that kind of stuff he went all the way with it and those films were not very popular with critics or with Batman fans they made a ton of money of course you know just an absolute boatload of money but they weren't but they were pretty derived you know the kind of scene is ruining batman at the time and so at you know after after batman and robin was in unequivocal critical failure which now that schumacher has died we're starting to see a little bit of a reevaluation of that as a fan of silly batman i appreciate that critical evaluation but the fact remains is that warner brothers pulled a third joel schumacher film batman unchanged and then the character kind of had you know, stopped there. 
uh, at the time. But enter Christopher Nolan into the picture. He worked with Warner Brothers in 2002 on Insomnia, a job that he got from Steven Soderbergh. We will devote another episode to uh, Insomnia, and we'll discuss that way more later, but that's important because in 2003, the year after Insomnia came out, Nolan pitched Warner Brothers on Batman. And his version of Batman was grounded in reality, um, and he, here's how he described it in a 2018 interview with Variety. He says, yes, it's a superhero, but it's based on ideas of guilt, fear, these strong impulses that the character has. Bruce Wayne doesn't have any superpowers other than extraordinary wealth. Really, he's just someone who does a lot of push-ups, <laughs> which is funny. <laughs> in that sense, he's very relatable and human. And so, you know, when you take Christopher Nolan, who, you, as we talked about last week, on last week's episode, had, a, you know, has a lot of noir aesthetics in his work, and making more grounded Batman, which for the story of a, like you referenced out, the story of a tortured billionaire orphan who spends his nights engaging in hand-to-hand combat with street criminals, that means that he was going to go dark with it. And I would argue that it works. He's able to pull off the sense of realism in a, in a comic book superhero story that does give these films some level of gravitas to them. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I would absolutely agree with that. I, 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 th- I think I think the films do work for the most part. I mean, I have some some individual issues with uh, with each of them, really, which we'll get yeah. into, I think. Uh, but I think the approach works. I mean, Batman, uh, in the entire history of the character, uh, there's been an ebb and flow mm-hmm. uh, to the degree of grittiness brought to this particular property. I mean, um, right. Batman, you know, he might have been conceived as, as a dark character, but there's always been something kind of silly about him. You know, I mean, he, he well, is sure, a guy who dresses up as a bat you know yeah Um, and he fights like cats and penguins and all these different animal characters you know it's silly so you've seen over the years you've you've definitely seen filmmakers and uh and i and i think even uh, comic book writers sort of wrestle with the degree to which they can they can play with uh the darkness of that material yes um some of them like frank miller for example in the in in the 80s had uh took took that took the darkness of, of of batman probably about as far as as you could go you know where you're yeah. pushing this character into into uh new levels of of extreme behavior and new levels of extreme psychology mm-hmm. yeah and i would i think that yeah if, if anything the the dark knight trilogy is similar to frank miller's 80s work like uh like the dark knight returns uh, it draws on the same themes although i think that maybe miller's work was a little bit more self-conscious about it we'll talk about it later when we talk about the dark mm-hmm. knight rises but one of the main themes in miller's work that does show up in nolan's trilogy is the idea of batman as a fascist he's a billionaire who decides what's best for everybody and he handles it himself and the public has no say in it Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely broaches that aspect of the character. Um, yeah. Miller uh, obviously has never, uh, I don't think, has ever really treated that aspect of the character critically. Um, no, he kind of likes it is the problem with Frank Miller. He yeah. likes the whole fascism thing. That's yeah. the problem with him. <laughs> He's proven himself to be a big uh, racist post 9-11 as yeah. well. He's um, definitely a problematic character. For sure. Uh, the Nolan films, I think, are a little bit... Um, are a little bit more ambivalent about it, but uh, mm-hmm. not, not entirely. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so I think we've just seen with with the bat with with Batman as a property, we have seen uh, a kind of. Uh, a kind of constant teetering between the light and the dark side of this character. Even mm-hmm. even talk about the Burton films, which looked in 1989 uh, when the, when the, when Tim Burton's first Batman came out. Uh, that film, sort of the reaction to it was that it was it was a very dark take on Batman. At kind of as people were looking at it as almost a response to the Adam West yeah. Batman, post Adam West, so, yeah, right. It was so radically different than 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 the, the TV version of Batman, the other the other screen version of Batman that was so popular. Um, but I mean, if you look at them now, the Burton films, especially when compared to the Nolan films, um, they have a campiness to them as well. Exactly. You yeah. Know, exactly. Um, I, I'm super. I'm super interested in the way that there's the, the, these films. Uh, Kind of end up being a response to each other because you talk about the Schumacher ones, mm-hmm. um, Batman Forever that- and Batman Ret- er, and uh, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, which were made in the late '90s. Um, those films were seen as uh, so Batman Returns had kind of underperformed a little bit, at least relative to the first Batman. And the I- Warner Brothers' idea was we need a Batman that's not so serious. Mm-hmm. Um, that actually is a little lighter in tone. So it's funny to think of um, to those films as course correcting away from Burton, and then to think of the Nolan films as course correcting away from from Joel Schumacher. You know? Yeah, it seems like you just see this pendulum swinging back and forth between the two. But yeah. how, the upcoming Batman film with Robert Pattinson seems like it's going to take a very uh, noir, detective, dark and gritty approach as well, which I would argue is a sign of the cultural impact of the Dark Knight trilogy. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. It would take a lot, I think, to see a Batman film that actually went legitimately light again after the success mm-hmm. of the Nolan films. Mm-hmm. I will say that we, we talked about this earlier on the show, um, earlier this year, uh, about the closest we'll probably get to that is something like Birds of Prey, which is yeah, I was gonna Batman say that adjacent, too. you know? Yeah, there's the whole, you know, in the comics, there's a whole universe around the b- Batman's a start, but there's a whole Gotham universe. And I do think that the Birds of Prey is where they're gonna play with it more For sure. going forward. Yeah, um, well, Originally, it's funny to think about these films as juggernauts, but Christopher Nolan has said he didn't originally plan for a trilogy. He just had the one Batman origin story in mind. But Batman Begins was received positively by critics and by audiences. It wasn't on the level of The Dark Knight, which was a full-on cultural phenomenon when it came out in 2008. The only other big film that I can think of in my lifetime, well, two other films that I can think of in my lifetime that had that big of a buzz, and it was Jurassic Park, and Black Panther were the two older films that it was all anybody was talking about. The what about Titanic? Oh, yes, Titanic, too. Yes, Titanic. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, The Dark Knight was uh, was for a wall little while wall. there. Yeah, I mean, like, It was uh, all anybody was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember. A billion it, dollars. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was going to say that for a little while it was number one on IMDb's list of the the, two, the 250 greatest films of all time. You know, users were voting on it. And I remember that The Dark Knight was sitting at number one for uh, for quite a while after the release of the film. Um, people were very well, jazzed about that movie. these films still have very high... Yeah, this film still have very high IMDb scores. Dark Knight is at a 9.0 right now, which is, I mean, you don't really see that on IMDb except for, like, The Godfather. That right. is, you know, <laughs> a classic. It gets a 9.0 on IMDb. 
Um, I remember, do you remember going to see The Dark Knight? I remember it very well mm-hmm. because um, my boyfriend at the time, you know, he grew up with comics and I, I always liked the Gotham ones best out of all the comics. Uh, you know, I used to read uh, Gail Simone's Birds of Prey, read all the Frank Miller stuff, that kind of, I, I always enjoyed those comics and so we'd go and see all the Batman movies when they came out and I remember we went to go see The Dark Knight on Tuesday after opening weekend and we showed up right when the movie was starting thinking it's Tuesday it'll be fine no we had to sit separate from each other on opposite ends of the front row because those were the only seats left in the theater <laughs> yeah I mean I, I for me I, I do remember going I actually did go opening night um, mm-hmm. uh, got my tickets very far in advance um, and went <laughs> uh, went on the Thursday you know the Thursday midnight um, and uh, I, I feel like this was rather unprecedented at the time but I remember that there were movie theaters there were some in Chicago and New York as well that were basically offering round the round the clock screenings. So oh wow, yeah. So if you couldn't get into a midnight of the Dark Knight uh, on opening night, you could go to a four a.m. and that sort of thing. Um, it made me because these very, are long movies, yeah, right? They, they are. <laughs> they're very long, and but they were like offering. It was like every screen was showing it, and they were offering one every. You know, they're basically offering one every hour if they could. Uh, wow. It made me very thankful that I did not work at a movie theater anymore at that point, or did I? Oh, actually, I did work at a movie theater at that point, but I was not working at one that would show anything like The Dark Knight. Yeah, no, nothing that was playing The Dark Knight. And, yeah. of course, The, the Dark Knight um, further legitimized superhero films. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, uh, The Dark Knight uh, achieved another big milestone for superhero films, something that I remember being analyzed to death when it happened and has since come to pass in some ways. Uh, Black Panther was nominated for some Oscars. Was Heath Ledger's posthumous o- Oscar for his role as the Joker, and he had died before the film's release, which I think added to the mystique not that the we'll talk about the his performance a little more later i don't think it really needed much hype on top of it but it did kind of add to the sort of buzz around the whole film certainly i think he would have won i think he would have won the oscar either way to be honest i Mm -hmm. think it was that Mm -hmm. iconic of a performance but i agree that it did contribute to that um speaking of the oscars it's probably worth noting too that um a lot of the the change that we saw in the Oscars uh, sort of in the early 2000s when when, for example, the Best Picture uh, lineup was exta- was was briefly expanded to ten nominees, mm-hmm. and now it's obviously it's variable. It's between five and ten. That change is largely attributed to the fact that Oscar voters did not nominate The Dark Knight for Best Picture. Um, Interesting. Okay. It, like open up all these discussions about uh, you know uh, is the Academy out of touch with populist cinema? This was a movie that mm-hmm. you know The Dark Knight had been this not only this enormous hit, it had been very well received. From critics, it was it was a beloved film. It was as as we mentioned before, regularly appearing at the top of IMDb's list. Recency mm-hmm. bias aside, um, and mm-hmm. when the Academy failed to nominate it, when the, the the other slots there were filled by films like The Reader and Frost Nixon, uh, <laughs> you know, movies that are not made to sustain the the to, to sustain the the test of time, one might say. Uh, right. The question right. was sort yeah. of like what what is it going to take for the Academy to recognize something like this? And it was decided that the, the, the lineup would have to be expanded to 10 nominees in order to accommodate something like The Dark Knight. More populist cinema, yes. or do, very briefly, they uh, entertain the idea of a best popular film award. Uh, 
that would basically be a block. You know, you have your real best picture and then your best blockbuster picture, which I'm glad they scrapped that Me idea. Me too. I mean, I don't want to go off on a big aside about this, but making a billion dollars worldwide is his own reward. Like, I, I actually don't <laughs> think we true. need to worry too much <laughs> about these movies not being up for awards. I mean, they're they're if, if awards have any value, it's pointing people in the direction of movies they should see and mm -hmm. uh, nobody needs to be pointed in the direction of the Batman films necessarily <laughs> so yeah you know I mean it's it, I feel very similarly all the talk about legitimizing horror you know I, I I don't really I'm not a huge superhero movie person probably the Batman ones are the ones I know the most about and even then I'm not an expert um, but I feel similarly when people talk about legitimizing horror, it's kind of like awards are nice, but if you don't get one, that doesn't mean, you know, you're worthless. You yeah. know, there are other rewards. To, yeah, there are other rewards to be had. And in this case, it was one point eight billion dollars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you. But yeah, with, with that kind of reception, just hit on all levels, you know, fan favorite, people started dressing like the Joker right away. The mm -hmm. Joker really took off as a cultural phenomenon. Following this movie, you had the Oscars, the critical acclaim, the big box office. It was inevitable they were going to make another one. It would have honestly been shocking if they hadn't made a third uh, Batman uh, Dark Knight trilogy film after The Dark Knight. And that is 2012's The Dark Knight Rises, which, you know, made a lot of money, but didn't make nearly the same kind of impression. I remember going to see this one on opening night. Yeah, no, I definitely did too, and and I remember being disappointed at it uh, with it at yeah, the time me actually. Too. Um, but I think we'll talk more about that later on in the show when we're sort of going through these individually. Um, yeah. I would say that I, I think it's worth talking about uh, the influence that these films have had overall, because. Yes. Um, you know, we talk about we talk about the Batman films as helping to legitimize comic book cinema, and uh, they were uh, in some in some respects, especially the second one, uh, was re received with uh, a degree of it, there was a, there was a degree of prestigiousness to it, uh, sort of put upon it by by great reviews and and by its uh, just general acclaim for it that mm -hmm. a lot of comic book cinema had not seen at that point. Um, no. I don't know if we no, see yeah. something like Black Panther without without Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. Um, that being said, I don't know how much. I think that Nolan's I think that Nolan's work on the Batman films has been influential to blockbuster cinema. I don't know how influential it's been to superhero movies, though. Yeah, I think. Well, you know, um, I think that there's another big factor at play here that we're not really talking about, which is the Marvel Cinematic Universe yeah. and its whole house style that it has. And the simple fact that they have a house style means that that's going to be a huge factor in the genre as a whole, whereas these are more, you know, creator driven stories. For sure. Um, I think that's a good point, um, because I think in some respects, making something like I mean, we, we've seen over the last few years that achieving what Marvel has pulled off with its uh, with the, this expanded universe is not an easy thing to do. Um, mm -hmm. At the same time, I think operating with uh, a formula of sorts, which I think a lot of the Marvel films do, is easier than doing what Nolan pulled off with the Batman films, which is creating, I, I would say, films that both fulfill their, their obligations as franchise blockbusters and kind of operate as idiosyncratic, uh, I mean, for lack of a better word, auteur films. You know? Um, yeah. Um, so with with these films, I think it's the, uh, they're not they weren't made completely free of the sort of, uh, you know, conventions of uh, 
superhero cinema. And I think that the big factor to point to there is David S. Goyer, who mm -hmm. co-wrote the stories on all three of the films. And, you know, he's done a lot of superhero work and he's continued working with DC. He, for example, wrote the infamous uh, in our circles, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. So yeah. I think that kind of shows that these, yeah, like you said, these weren't made outside of the obligations of blockbuster filmmaking, but compared to something like a Captain America film, it did have a lot more room to put uh, an individual stamp on them as a trilogy and also each film as a whole. For example, uh, you know, when Nolan talks about the films, he describes each one of them as, he sees each one of them as a different genre, mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to calling them all superhero films or action films. Um, in the same 2018 Variety interview I was mentioning, he says that Batman Begins is a straightforward origin story. And that film, Batman doesn't show up until a full hour into the movie. Yeah. You know, before that, you have it's got elements of, you know, a ninja martial arts movie. It's got it's got James Bond elements. And there's even some horror elements in Batman Begins because of the character of Scarecrow, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, he also describes the films as being uh, more defined by their villains more than they are defined by Batman. Um, I don't think that's radically different than what the Burton films were doing necessarily. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think one of the things that you um, one of the things you encounter with Batman is that he's potentially not that interesting of a character. Right. Um, you know, I mean, like he's a, he's a rich guy who dresses up as a bat and and does push-ups all day, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like Christopher Nolan yeah. said, I mean, you have to do push-ups all day if you want to be Batman. <laughs> I love that you his, the very movies do fit. show him doing push-ups too. They're like, they it's do. Important that you understand they do. This. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, it, it, it's it's something that the movies I think have struggled with with since they started making movies uh, f mm -hmm. from from Batman, and I think that they've often compensated by making the villains, uh, but by, by foregrounding the villains. I mean, I, I actually remember that in Batman, uh, in Bat uh, in Batman Returns. That there was uh, that Keaton complained uh, after the movie came out that he felt that he didn't get enough screen time in the film. That uh, huh. so much of the film was devoted to the Penguin and to and to Catwoman that he felt like he was being sort of nudged to the margins of his own movie. And I think that's going to kind of just naturally happen when you're dealing with this world because the villains are so much more colorful than. I mean, Batman is this monolithic figure. I mean, he's literally you know uh, he's he, he's literally a figure in black, and. Uh, mm -hmm any contrast you have of that in, in, in the form of the villains, it, they're going to stand out more. And uh, so I don't know if Nolan deserves too much credit for, for, for that innovation. Um, mm. Because I think it, it, I like, don't know if he, I don't know if you would call it an innovation per se. It's just was sort of how he was framing, you know, the, the storytelling. Yeah. Um, I will say that I do think that Nolan attempts to give, he attempts to, to to get into Bruce Wayne's psychology in a way that the previous Batman films had not, mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's that a I, lot of the first hour of Batman Begins. Yes, it that's totally starts with is. Batman Begins. You know, um, he yeah. re, he really is trying to. He really wants to know who who Bruce Wayne is and what drives him. And uh, yeah, I mean, as you said, Batman doesn't show up for an hour into that film because we're getting we're getting mm -hmm. this extended backstory where we're seeing him as a boy and we're seeing the time he, he spends uh, being trained under the League of Shadows. There, it, it really is an, 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 an hour of, of setup before Batman even shows up. Yeah, and that, that I think, 
some of the things that he points to in Batman Begins as like explanations for some of the more like comic booky aspects of Batman's character. Like um, they they make a point of when he's training with the League of Shadows, saying that theatricality is part of uh, you know a ninja's toolkit. And I'm like, okay, that's why he wears the costume. All right, like fear and theatricality. I'll give you that movie. <laughs> and the whole Batcave is uh, traced back to in a rather uh, psychoanalytic kind of manner to an incident as a kid when he falls down a well and you know it is attacked by bats <laughs> yeah uh, it, Batman Begins is really interesting to me because um, I think on one level it, it it so clearly is meant as a course correction from the Schumacher Batman films mm-hmm. like it, it is designed from the bottom up to be like we're going to take this character in this world seriously none of that camp bullshit you know it's like going to be a, ver- a very grounded take on Batman which but, but I mean the thing is number one it's impossible to do a truly grounded take on batman he as we talked about earlier i mean this is this is a a fundamentally a comic book fantasy world so you yep. get a lot of that tension in batman begins where i feel like you're seeing um, him try to make it sort of as grounded as he can well it still is operating as comic book silliness in its own way um i think the other thing about it though is that in retrospect looking back on that film uh having rewatched it this week in in preparation for this podcast there actually is a lot of um there are there are vestiges of the burton slash schumacher era in it um Mm -hmm. i I actually don't think uh, nolan really i think nolan in the same way that following was kind of a dry run to uh to memento I think yeah. that in a lot of respects, Batman Begins feels to me like a dry run to the to the two he made after it. Um, oh, interesting. I mean, he claims that that wasn't his intention. Right, which is interesting because the movie feels so much like... Uh, I mean, maybe this is an origin story problem in general. Because to me, mm-hmm. Batman Begins feels so much like a protracted setup. It feels like we oh, yes. have to introduce everything, you know? Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> it feels a bit long that way, honestly, to me. Um, yeah. You know, these are all... Every single one of these movies is two and a half hours long. Um, but, but yeah, Batman Begins, because it takes its time getting where it's going, I respect that it's doing that, but it does feel a little bit long to me, this film. Yeah, I mean, it's a little overstuffed. I mean, um, mm-hmm. I, I actually think that the middle one is the only one that, to me, doesn't feel like it's it's it might be trying to do a little bit more than it can. Um, right. I mean, he's he has... So Nolan has borrowed from lots of different sort of popular Batman texts throughout throughout his run. Uh, I think there's a lot of, uh, of Miller's year one in Batman Begins, yeah. you know, this idea mm-hmm. of, of, of Bruce Wayne first getting started as Batman. But that's, that's I, mean, I mean, honestly, that's only one part of its architecture because we get that, that's, you know, there's like one section of the film that's about him becoming Batman and it has to do a bunch of other things too, you know? Yeah, I think that throughout it, though, the theme of fear and like managing and harnessing fear and the psychological aspect of it, which, you know, it does play so heavily into the setup. I think that carries through into the story when you get into the more cops and robbers superhero part of the story. For sure. I do think it has a thematic backbone that like if you Mm -hmm. go back and watch the Burton films, for example, those movies are not. I mean, I, I personally really like Batman Returns, for example. Um, mm-hmm. I think those movies are a lot of fun. Those, those are not movies of ideas, necessarily. No, like, not really. <laughs> you know, um, that's not really Burton's whole thing. These are movies that are sometimes, one might say, even to a fault, married to these thematic 
uh, to these thematic ideas that that they're that they're uh, applying to the Batman world. You know. Yeah, like the plot of Batman Begins is overstuffed, but I think thematically, or I, you could even say philosophically, to be honest, I think that it's the most streamlined in that respect. Even if the plot is very uh, overstuffed, that's probably true. Um, yeah. But there, again, there are, there are elements of it that still feel to me a little bit like a 90s comic book movie. I mean, uh, we mm-hmm. talked earlier about the changing face of Gotham. You were saying that they recast, you know, I mean, uh, the second film was shot in Chicago famously and has a lot of Chicago architecture in it. The, the oh, third. yeah. I was complaining about this off mic about how yeah, they moved yeah, Gotham yeah. to Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Then in the third one, they're shooting in other locations, so it doesn't have quite mm-hmm. the same architectural identity. That's true of the first film, too, though. I mean, in the first one, we get this, yeah. this we get the Narrows, which is this, um, it's it's sort of the slums of, of Gotham. And uh, there's also this, uh, there's this, this CGI train that sort of whips around the city. These are aspects Oh, the monorail. That, yeah, they the monorail. Can, they <laughs> Abandoned the monorail. Completely he abandoned gets, it. The most awkward moment in all of Batman Begins is when he's describing his plan that involves the monorail, and it's a very long chunk of exposition, and it's delivered with a lot of seriousness. And by the end of it, you're just like, okay, yeah, the monorail. <laughs> and they just throw that out the window. It does not come up again. <laughs> no, I mean, because his conception of what Gotham even looks like changes in the second one. In the second one, he decides it's basically Chicago. And he's like, I want this to yeah. feel more like a real city. Because in yeah. Batman Begins, there is still an aspect of it where, where you watch it. it. Visually and conceptually, I think Gotham is still a little bit of an unreal place in that film. Like it is in the Burton films. Exactly. So that's sort of this yeah. vestige of, of an older take on it, um, even as he destylizes certain elements. I mean, Batman Begins has long sequences at Arkham Asylum, and I have never seen Arkham Asylum look so much like just a normal hospital as it does in Batman yep. Begins. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have a mm-hmm. question for you, though. Yeah. Uh, something that, that rewatching Batman Begins that sort of uh, that I got a little hung up on. What exactly is the timeline in terms of era for these films because so at the beginning of the film we're seeing Bruce Wayne as a child we're sort of reiterating um, well actually not actually at the, the very beginning of the film it's worth noting that Batman Begins like a lot of Nolan's other work is a little is chronologically non-linear so it jumps yep. around a little bit but we get a whole portion with Wayne as a boy sort of setting mm-hmm. up his fear of bats and his parents being killed which we have seen in like every Batman movie yeah. over and over yeah. again and you see in this film too yep you do um, <laughs> less of a I, I have yet to see it but I very much respect what I've heard about the Teen Titans Go movie where they make a joke out of Batman's parents <laughs> getting killed that's I funny think that that's, yeah. yeah good for them um <laughs> But my question is, like, so we see we see him as a boy during this time, but Gotham looks the way that it does mm-hmm. not. Like, it looks the same well, as it does. So what era is it supposed to be in? Because if there's there, if there's a monorail zipping around the city, it, it honestly looks like 2000s when he's when he's a 10 year old boy. Yeah, that's another. I mean, you know, these films, we were talking about them taking place outside of geography. Yeah. I did watch, um, to just quickly follow up on your point about Chicago, I did watch Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, like, literally back to back. I sat and, sat and watched one and then turned on the other one. Got it. And, th- and there are parts of Chicago, uh, specifically the bridges over the Chicago River, that he does reuse in both of those films, like shoot stuff in the same mm-hmm. area. And they love Lower Wacker Drive. They just use <laughs> the hell out of Lower Wacker Drive in Batman Begins and 
the Dark Knight. And so like those are a little more Chicago, but if Gotham is a place outside of geography, maybe it's a place outside of chronology too. Maybe that doesn't matter so much. Probably probably best to, to feel that way about it. Yes, <laughs> not to not get too hard well, up. And well, yes, because that is another area where I'm tempted to get nitpicky because particularly you see this in The Dark Knight Rises, Bruce Wayne just disappears for long periods of time and they're like he was gone for eight years and you're like wait really <laughs> yeah 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 one you of know? the things I find really interesting about Nolan's Batman films is um, you know most Batman stories imply a whole imply many many years of him being Batman you know mm-hmm. like there's this whole there's a whole even when we don't see the other villains there is an implied rogues gallery like outside yep. outside frame line you know like mm-hmm. uh like burton like burton's batman movies i don't think they 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 suggest that he could have been fighting various other supervillains over the years in between entries nolan's films and this is part of i think what makes them feel self-contained in a way that a lot of a lot of comic book movies no longer do um mm-hmm. nolan's films create a very short timeline in which Bruce Wayne is actually Batman. Um, because if you think about it, like, The yeah, Dark Knight and takes it, place it, it, a year later, you know? And by the end of, spoiler mm-hmm. alert, by the end of The Dark Knight, he's stopped being Batman. So really, the implication is that Batman was around as a thing for about a year, right? Yeah, uh, well, so, yeah, as, let me think. Uh, so Batman Begins, he's supposed to have been away for seven years off on his journey in the desert into becoming Batman. Um, and then he become, and then he's Batman for a year, and then eight more years go by before the events of The Dark Knight Rises, which take place over a couple months. So really, yeah, it's like over the course of two decades, you maybe have like a year and a half of Batman. It's 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 a bizarre choice, but I think it does like... It does suggest a, a, I mean, like the Nolan Batman films don't leave a lot of wiggle room for you to continue on top of them. They are really pretty contained as a trilogy. And mm-hmm. uh, Nolan is uh, Nolan is not interested in somebody picking up the baton, even if the last one does kind of end with a picking up the baton moment. <laughs> yes. <You know? laughs> as these things need to do. <laughs> for sure. Um, I, don't, I just don't think the first one is... is, is I don't think it's one of Nolan's most interesting movies, period. We, you know, we're talking all this month about Nolan. And I think it's one of his least visually interesting films in a lot of ways. There is a sort of flatness to it yeah. that I just, I see a lot in films from around, you know, the, the mid-2000s. And I wonder if that's just, well, you know, Nolan shoots on film, so I suppose that wouldn't have been an issue. But yeah, there is sort of a flat look to Batman Begins. It's not very exciting visually. There's really nothing all that colorful about it. And we talked a little bit last week about him learning to stage action scenes. Mm-hmm. Like, it's better here, but I don't think he had quite become a master of the action scenes. Definitely not. I mean, I, I actually yeah. think that you can look at this trilogy as uh, you can sort of track Nolan's development as, I think, both a visual artist and a blockbuster mm-hmm. filmmaker over the course of this trilogy. Because I think, um, though I think, and I've made no secret of this, I think the middle film is the best of the bunch. Uh, I do think that I, I don't is, think you can argue with that. It's hard to argue with, honestly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, I do think that his filmmaking is getting more sophisticated as he goes mm-hmm. to the point where by the time that the third film comes out, he know, he really knows what he's doing in terms of yeah. staging this stuff and in Batman Begins I don't think he, he quite knows I think the other issue is that um, you can kind of see him negotiating 
where this can be a Christopher Nolan film and where it has to be a franchise mm. blockbuster. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned Goyer earlier, and, uh, David S. Goyer, this, uh, his co-screenwriter on the film, and a lot of this movie feels as much like a, a Goyer script as a Nolan script to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, one thing I will say about Nolan um, and work, he, he took to the big sandbox right away, I think. I think that yeah. uh, like it, it do, it's a very, Batman Begins is a slick movie. Mm-hmm. I think he really um, just picked up the gigantic blockbuster budget and ran with it right away. Sometimes you see directors who fumble a little bit when they yeah. go from, you know, an indie movie to a big production, but Nolan definitely took the ball and ran with it. That's true. Um, but I don't, I, I think it would, it, it would take another movie for him to kind of make Batman his own. Um, is there yes. a cool action scene in the in Batman Begins? I'm not sure there is. Um, I like the scene when he blows up the League of Shadows, when he blows up Ra's al Ghul's house. Okay. That's a cool scene. Okay. But I found that unmemorable, personally. I, 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 I don't find any of the It's what came to anymore. mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, well, and even, you know, Batman has this rule, no guns, no killing. But uh, here, I think I find it slightly anticlimactic. <laughs> the, yeah. the demises of the two villains, like uh, Scarecrow is defeated quite easily yeah. by uh, Katie Holmes, Rachel Dawes character, but that's supposed to be kind of a punchline that, you know, Scarecrow really isn't that scary of a villain without his <laughs> his hallucinogenic fear drugs. But even uh, Raza Ghoul's death, uh, a spoiler alert, I suppose, but <laughs> um, is, uh, you know, it's like he he drives away in a truck and then the truck blows up and it all happens over here, away from where the majority of the action was taking place and well, he's on the train me, right i mean they're on the train together and batman says yeah and then and then he crashes into a semi truck i believe yeah uh i always yeah. found that moment to be kind of um i think he's doing some moral gymnastics to get out of saying that he killed somebody because he says yeah that's exactly film, what it is you know he says uh i'm not gonna kill you well, but i, I don't have him. to save you like well you, mm-hmm. Well, then you're killing him. I mean, you're leaving him in a train yeah. that is going to crash. <laughs> like, what? And let's he not split made the hairs train. here, Batman. Yeah, and he blew up the track, so right. the train would crash. You killed him, buddy. Like, <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, yeah um, he's definitely doing some moral gymnastics there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do think that what kind of holds the first movie together, for me anyway, is, uh, is Bale himself. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that some of that is, uh, I mean, I do think that that Nolan cares more about Wayne as a character than any any of the previous films have, you know? Yeah, I'd agree with that. He certainly spends a lot more time sort of analyzing his mindset. For sure. Uh, But I do think that some of it is also in Bale's performance, too. And I think that Mm. his conception of Wayne himself as a performance um, these movies get into uh, this idea that whenever, whenever, I mean, so Rachel Dawes, the character played by Katie Holmes in the first film and later played by Maggie Gyllenhaal in the second one, mm-hmm. um, she has a moment towards the end of Batman Begins where she basically lays out this idea that's uh, by no means new to Batman mythos, but uh, is interesting to see in the film. Th- this idea that uh, that the mask he's wearing is Bruce Wayne, that he, the Batman, yes. that Batman is the real him. And uh, I think it's interesting the degree to which Bale commits to that idea and commits to Wayne as it's almost like he's doing whenever he's playing Wayne, at least when he's playing Wayne in public, he's playing him as this kind of uh, he's doing this performance as a spoiled rich scion, you know, to cover his tracks. 
Yeah, I always wonder, like, they always show when he's being Bruce Wayne, he always has more than one woman with him. And I always wonder, like, what happens when, you know, they get in the limo or they get on the yacht and they pull away? Does he say, does he, you know, he say, thanks, ladies, that'll be all for today? You know, (laughs) like, what happens there? I would have to assume he goes home with them. You know, I guess. And then Alfred sees them out in the morning or something. Yeah, know? he keeps up the facade to that extent, you think? Yeah, I, I, well, I think so. Well, maybe, though. He's a very broody guy. It's actually really hard to imagine the version of Bruce Wayne in the, in the Christopher Nolan films having sex. Uh, right, that's what I'm saying. You know, but he always even, has multiple women with does. him. And I just, I just can't imagine him... You know, seeing that scenario through, so yeah. to speak. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. There's even a sex scene in the third film, sort of. And I just, uh, yep. this Batman seems too dysfunctionally driven by his, his obsessions to, uh, yeah. I just, I don't see how he, he carries on a romantic relationship. Listen, at the very least, he gets up in the middle of the night and she wakes up in the middle of the night and he's not there and she yeah. thinks he's in the bathroom, but he's not. He's down in the Batcave tinkering with something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Minimum. <laughs> Minimum, that's what happens. <laughs> oh, I want to add, though, I did look this up because, you know, we were talking about uh, continuity or the lack thereof visually between these three films. Uh, the the Apparently, Katie Holmes was offered the role in The Dark Knight and she said, no, I'm good. She, wanted, she didn't w- w- want to take the role. So that wasn't. Yeah, that was her decision, apparently. People, are, I think, are a little hard on her performance. Uh, people, like, really trash her performance in Batman Begins. Mm-hmm. I think she's fine. I mean, I don't think it's the... She's fine. That character isn't... Not that's not the most rewarding role. It's not a particularly complex role. Right. Yeah, yeah. Jinx. <laughs> yeah. She just kind of yeah. has to lecture him about his responsibilities and... Right. Um, she's yeah. just there to go, but Bruce, you used to be a regular person. <laughs> <laughs> like, that. that's, you know, as regular as yeah, he yeah, could yeah. be, I suppose. <laughs> So let me ask you this by way of transition. Okay. What do you think is the major thing? I, I mean, I think we can agree that The Dark Knight is a better film than Batman Begins in almost mm-hmm, almost mm-hmm. all respects. But what do you think is the major thing that The Dark Knight has going for it that Batman Begins does not? Okay. I, when I rewatched uh, The Dark Knight the other day, um, I had a slightly different uh, take on it than when I saw it the first time. Okay. I don't think the movie would be nothing without Heath Ledger. Like, it's still a good movie, even without Heath Ledger, but Heath Ledger is what takes it over the top. Very His performance as so. Joker is just an absolute classic performance. Um, if you live in Chicago, there's some extra layers to it where <laughs> he sounds like your dad's buddy from the Plumbers Union. If he had, like, a psychotic episode, you know what I mean? <laughs> He's got this, you know, working man Chicago accent. And honestly, every single scene he was in, you can't look at anything else. Like, he just commands your attention the entire time he's on screen. And the scenes where he isn't on screen, I, I was personally sitting there being like, ooh, there's another Joker scene coming up. Totally. I actually kind of think honest. of it as, um, I think it's a performance kind of in the league of, like, Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't have a ton of screen time. Uh, I think that if you string together all of the Joker scenes, it's... Uh, probably less than 20 minutes, I think, of screen time. That's wild because it's such an outsized impression in my mind when I think about the film. It I is, think about but him. he's not in it that much. I mean, uh, he, you know, because he he shows up sort of uh, towards the end of the first act, basically. And, uh, well, I mean, we first see him in the opening scene, which I think is, uh, is the first sign that this is going to be a much different and, I would say, yeah. more accomplished film. I remember seeing that opening scene 
they were using it as a kind of extended preview. They were showing it on IMAX screens, and I was seeing I Am Legend, the Will, the Will Smith film, and uh, they were just playing that entire those that those opening seven minutes or something. Oh wow! Like as, as a preview? As a preview, yeah. Um, cool. And it was like talk about like getting people excited to see this movie because I mean the Michael Mann influence you talked about is so there in that first scene. Um, yeah, including um, with the appearance of William Fickner, obviously, who's in who's in Heat as well. Yeah, there's a lot of recurring um, actors in you know uh, the casting in these films. I think is great. Yeah, um, for sure. uh, that's been constant throughout all the Christopher Nolan's films we watch. Is that the casting? The casting is just great, and uh, yeah. So it's interesting because I will admit that when The Dark Knight came out, I had not seen Heat yet, and mm. then I saw Heat after I had seen The Dark Knight, and I was like, oh, I see where he got that Yeah, from. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, very Michael Mann. <laughs> I, I agree with you 100% that, uh, that Ledger is the thing that takes The Dark Knight over the top. I will say that part of that, though, is also just the fact that the movie has the Joker. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's actually rather... This is one influence that I think that 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 Nolan's Batman films have had on comic book cinema is saving the significant villain for the second film, mm-hmm. um, which you didn't see a lot of for many years. I mean, Lex Luthor shows up in the first Superman film. Magneto is in the first X Men film, and every damn X Men film after it for some reason. Um, <laughs> That's a topic for another day. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they saved the Joker for the second film, and mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I think that's that's smart in a lot of ways. But I think one way that's smart is that um, there would be no room to really do that particular character justice with everything else that Batman Begins has to do. It's almost like the villains. Yeah. I mean, another. I hate to go back to Batman Begins, but another issue I have is that I think Scarecrow is a cool villain, but the movie barely has time for him. Honestly. No, there, there's barely any time for Scarecrow. I mean, Scarecrow does add some cool kind of horror elements to the film, yeah. which I think, it, you know, where uh, having the hallucinations and things like that, which I think is a smart way to uh, make Batman a slightly less grim and gritty by just taking a slightly different approach to, like, edgy material. Yeah. I think that's a smart way to do it. Yeah. I also, I will say I also really like Nolan, how Nolan has found a way to bring to bring uh, that character, Dr. Crane, back in small, in like a few scenes yes, in the sequels. Yes. You know? It's very fun <laughs> to see him show up again. Um, but oh, yeah. I love I love his cameo in The Dark Knight Rises. It's yes, really fun. Yes, me too. It's very funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think that that uh, bringing the Joker in makes a lot of sense, and I think that Nolan's particular take on the Joker is pretty interesting. I mean, a, a lot of it comes down to him. Uh, he sort of treats him like a force of nature in some ways. Yeah. Um, a, a story came out recently that said that there was actually a little bit of um, there was a little bit of blowback, I think, from from Warner Brothers on the idea that we would get no backstory for the Joker. Yes. Yes, um, I read this too. Yeah. That's just such a terrifying choice, though, because I mean, the way he plays it, we we get the first scene where he kills um, where, he, where he kills one of one of the the local crime bosses, and he tells this. He tells yes. this macabre story explaining where he got the scars on his face. He and tells three of them. He over does. The course of the film. He does, mm-hmm. and it's not until the second one where he's at when he's at this party and he's, and he's threatening Rachel Dawes that we realize that the that the backstory itself is a put on. That uh, yeah. he's kind of making, and, and in a way, it's like the movie is actually making a joke about. It's in t- about the entire film that preceded it, you know? I mean, like, we mm-hmm. had an entire movie that was an origin story of Batman explaining how he came to be, and the Joker basically tosses off the mere notion of an origin story in a couple of fake stories. 
Well, let me, okay, so let me ask you something. I think this might be a little bit out there, but do you think that even having the character of the Joker and how he always goes, why so serious and all that kind of stuff, do you think that that's Nolan having a little bit of fun with the very like stone-faced seriousness of the series itself? Maybe, um, to some extent, I think. I mean, certainly I think the Joker as a character looks at this serious world and gets a laugh out of it, you know? Right, but uh, it's such a serious interpretation of the Joker that I'm not sure that my theory is fully baked. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. I mean, this version of the Joker that we see in The Dark Knight is 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 not funny. I mean, he doesn't, he barely no, makes jokes. He's scary. Yeah, I mean, he's a little funny here and there, but in, in the darkest in the darkest way possible, I would say. He is mm-hmm. very scary. Yeah, I mean, he, he really does play him as somebody who, uh, who I mean, he's, he's a homicidal maniac. And yeah. I've enjoyed previous interpretations of the Joker that have, that have treated him as this sort of born performer. In The Dark Knight, he's, I mean, he's basically just, he's basically just a terrorist <laughs> in some ways, yeah. you know? I mean, he's just chaos, chaos incarnate. And yeah. like his idea of a joke is one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie because I remember gasping when I saw it in the theater was when he says, do you want to see the pencil trick? Yeah. And then he smashes the guy, the pencil through the guy's head. Yeah. And uh, speaking of the scary bit, there is a moment in this movie where like, like Ledger really pushes um, the performance uh there, there's a part in the movie where he's kidnapped a guy mm-hmm. who, you know, goes around impersonating Batman and he kidnaps him and he's doing a video, like a hostage, like you said, a terrorist, like a hostage video. And there's one part where the guys are looking at him and he goes, I'm going to do a voice here. Look at me. And the way he does it is so scary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's uh, truly like terrifying. A piece of trivia about that scene that I've read actually is that that was the first thing that Ledger recorded as the, as the Joker. And wow. yeah, he, he had been like kind of working on the character and they had been coming up with ideas for him visually. And he recorded that scene. And that was the first thing that anyone saw of him as the Joker. And oh, man. Uh, <laughs> I, I can only imagine seeing that and being like, oh, yeah, we made the right choice. Because oh, yeah. people were really uh, when it was announced that Ledger would be playing the role, people were really skeptical of that. Like, really? Uh, I don't know about this. Yeah, I mean, he in the same way that I mean, this happens with with comic book casting all the time, and, and there's a there's a history of it in Batman films too. I mean, people people were people wrote in to complain about Michael Keaton being cast as Batman back in '89. There was hmm. like a whole write-in campaign. This was obviously before the internet, really, and um, people were really skeptical. I think of Ledger because Ledger had never done anything as an actor that suggested that he could be as diabolical as he needed to be mm-hmm. as the Joker. Um, so it was such a... Well, he a, pulled it off. <laughs> yeah. It was such a jolt of, of electricity to see him in that role. Um, mm-hmm. I really do think and, he and deserved that Oscar. Yeah, no, he did. And yeah, just like his physicality of the role and the way yeah. that he keeps playing with the scars on the side of his face. Yeah, like his sucking his face. Oh, man. Yeah, it's like drawing attention to the scars. Yeah. is such a such a creepy little detail. And I mentioned it earlier, but I really like his, his Chicago accent. This yeah. film is very grounded in Chicago. Like it you is. said, no one is embracing it as a city. The other thing that really struck me is how many lines from this film have kind of become pop cultural proverbs like Mm -hmm. the idea of some men just want to watch the world burn Mm -hmm. people will say that not referring to Batman it's like an idea of someone who's a pure chaos agent they'll use a line from the dark knight to describe a certain phenomenon yeah totally yeah I mean I think that's how deeply this thing has ingrained itself into the into the sort of pop culture consciousness 
you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, deeply. Yeah. Uh, I, Certainly you wouldn't have seen Joaquin Phoenix's Joker without this movie. Certainly not. Oh, no, definitely not. I mean, yeah, I think this definitely laid, laid, laid the ground for that. And it's interesting to see that now two actors have won... Um, have have won an Oscar for playing this character. Sorry, yeah. Jared Leto, you weren't one of them. <laughs> oh, Jared Leto, it's okay, buddy. <laughs> did, he got an Oscar for Dallas Buyers Club. He did. He's fine. He's yeah. doing fine. He's Hush. doing fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I really, I look at this thing and I just think that the the extent that it benefits from being a middle child, you know, mm-hmm. um, because it's unburdened by the setup that Batman Begins has to do, and it doesn't have any need to be conclusive either. I mean, the last film was wrapping up this whole trilogy. I mean, it's it's the longest in the, in the series as well. Um, mm-hmm. And in The Dark Knight, you get the sense that Nolan is confident enough to do what he wants with this character, with this world, and he gets, he gets to play in this world he's created. And man, does this movie move, you know? Like, I feel like, like after that opening scene, after the opening bank robbery, mm-hmm. the thing just moves like a lit fuse, you know? Yeah, it's basically like this film, uh, I wouldn't call it a series of set pieces necessarily because mm-hmm. the plot is a strong through line throughout, but it just goes from set piece to set piece to set yeah. piece, this big action scene to big action scene, uh, just nonstop, yeah, beginning to end. It, 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 it's, it's surprisingly brisk for something that's as long as it is, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I really... I really think that Nolan, too, was starting to master the art of coming up with these iconic shots as well. He was really, uh, he, he sort of, in a way that he does not in Batman Begins, he was really thinking in terms, almost in terms, I, I think occasionally, of uh, panels in a comic or something. Because okay, there are yeah. images, like, there are images that are sort of locked in my brain from, from watching this film. Um, like like the one where... Like what? Uh, well, so, like, the scene after the big, the big the big truck chase, the sort of the big action film. The big I action love the, ch- the truck chase. It's one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. It's a good one for sure. He actually yeah. really flipped that truck too, which I think does make yeah. a difference. Um, but there's a, there's a shot after that where Batman zips, the Joker's in the middle of the street with a machine gun and Batman zips by him on the motorcycle and the Joker just kind of looks over his shoulder and it's, it's like something you would see on the cover of a comic book. And there's, I think there's a number of iconic images in the film that have that kind of have that kind of power and memorability to them, you know? Yeah, and and um, doing it without going into camp because a lot of times people will do the kind of panel effect, but they do it in an explicitly comic booky cartoon kind of way. Yeah. And he's not doing that here. It still yeah. has that basis in the Michael Mann crime film world. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I do think that uh, one of the strengths of The Dark Knight is that it gets this balance that the first film didn't quite get w- between mm-hmm. um, between grounding this in in something like the real world, the way that he wanted, to, I think that he's always wanted to, and being true to the kind of flamboyant spirit of comic books and to the source mm-hmm. material. You know, like D- Gotham City is a real place in this movie, but it's still also Gotham City. And yeah. uh, the fact that he could do the Joker, a jo- the character who is so flamboyant and so comic booky, and make him feel like a real threat in a way that I'm not sure any of the yeah. previous movies did, um, he pulls it off, I think. 
Yeah, I don't think any iteration of the Joker is as threatening as Heath Ledger's. Like he, like you talked about him as a showman. Like here, he just feels like someone who could lash out with extreme violence at any time, and you know, just a very unstable person is how he comes across. So uh, I, I do think it's significant that we're talking so much about the Joker and not talking about Two Face at all yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in our discussion of the Dark Knight. I think the Two Face, like Harvey Dent, is part of the plot. And so I suppose they had to put Two-Face in there somewhere. But I just feel like all of his villain stuff is um, pretty much unnecessary to the film. (laughs) Well, I don't know if I agree, to be honest. Um, I think the Two-Face stuff plays pretty well. Um, I don't think that he... Nolan's conception of the character is not exactly the same as a a traditional uh, take on Um, Mm Two-Face. I think in part because he is really functioning as kind of uh, an 11th hour villain. In some ways, right? Um, I mean, he kills he kills some people, but I mean, ultimately, the, the Joker dominates this film in yes, a way where much. you almost don't need to face. Um, I right. think that he's mostly interested in him as a tragic figure, as something that shows the true damage that the Joker has done to uh, to the soul of Gotham, so to speak. I think is how the Joker. Yeah. Puts it. Well, and it also provides one of the silliest moments in the film, which is when Joker shows up in Harvey Dent's uh, hospital room with a face mask on and then <laughs> takes it off. And then all of a sudden, uh, Harvey Dent's like, oh, my God, it's the Joker. And yeah. it's like the How makeup and the green hair. How did before that? Yeah. <laughs> there, are, there are a lot of little things. I don't like to do this because I think in general, um, we, we, re- we really only want to nitpick the movies that aren't working for us. Right, exactly. Um, you know, and on a whole, The Dark Knight works, I think, splendidly for me. So I'm not particularly yes. interested in getting hung up on stuff. But I will say there, there, there are little things here and there in the film, little plot holes th- that pop up in the film. For one thing, can you answer this? I, I'm sure you can't because I don't think anybody can, but I'm going to ask mm-hmm. you anyway. Who, so there's a moment where, towards the end, where towards the very end of the movie, when, uh, when basically when Batman is talking to Gordon, and Gordon says that Two-Face has killed... Uh, six people. Yeah. Who the hell are the six people? I mean, because I, have I count no idea, maybe man. three or four, I think. I I have know. no idea. I was waiting for the Joker to come back. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, are, is he accidentally counting some people that the Joker killed or something? Uh, I do not maybe? understand. <laughs> yeah, I do not understand that. But um, Maybe, yeah. There, like, when I rewatched it, there were some parts in the non-Joker parts of the film where I was like, oh, I'm, eh, maybe this isn't a perfect film. For example, not. I think this film is where Christian Bale jumped the shark with his Batman voice. Okay. I'm sorry. I think he jumped the shark in this movie. <laughs> you can't say more than three or four words in that voice without sounding stupid. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't understand why they didn't just put an actual voice modulator on him and, you know, and then it would be credible. But instead, they have him talk like this. Yeah, it's never bothered me that much. I think partially because uh, I, I know this is, this is sort of blasphemy, but I, I've Batman is a silly character, I think, in some ways. And sure. I don't really mind that. He, I mean, he's doing a performance in the same way that he's performing as Wayne sometimes. I think he's also performing as Batman uh, at times. And I think that that voice is a, a deliberate, it's deliberately affected in some ways. And uh, I can accept Oh, it. interesting. I always figured that it was to make it harder to recognize him. That probably is actually the reason, but I, you know, <laughs> I, I think that he wants to sound kind of inhuman too, or something. Uh, yeah, like just sound scary and tough, I guess. Yeah, it is one aspect though that definitely has always played better on the page. Like when I see a mm. dialogue 
bubble that's like uh, that's been like written in a different font as the rest of it. I get the idea that his voice sounds different, and I can imagine mm-hmm. what it sounds like. The movies mm-hmm. have never come up with it with a version of that that uh, is really intimidating. You know? Yeah, I think what it is, honestly, is just that, as I mentioned up top, I really do think that these films, you know, like you can kind of goof on them a little bit for being so self-serious. But I think that the films really do pull off the gravitas quite well, considering the subject matter. But there's just certain times when the movie brushes up against the silliness, comic book silliness that it just... Like, it really stands out because the rest of it is so, like, grounded in reality. <laughs> yeah, I was actually watching, when I was rewatching Batman Begins this week, uh, uh, This week, I was watching it with someone who uh, does not like uh, superhero stuff, really. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a scene where he's, like, standing, he's, like, he's, like, he's like perched on this back balcony it looks very much like a balcony in chicago you know mm-hmm. it's like oh yeah i've been on that balcony before <laughs> uh, <laughs> i've been drunk on that yeah, i've been drunk before. on that balcony totally <laughs> and he's just crouching there and he's whispering at this kid and she was like yeah this is why i just cannot take these things seriously yeah. um, there's always going to be an inherent silliness i think to, to comic book fair to superhero movies um I do think that the Nolan films do about the best job you can in investing them with uh, with real ideas and treating them as seriously as you can and um, without zapping them of the fun. You know, I mean, you talk about yeah. the one, the one you, the, 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 there is, there is an, like Nolan has influenced at least one corner of blockbuster filmmaking and that's the DC films they made afterwards, specifically Zack mm-hmm. Snyder's films. Um, and uh, I do think that Nolan manages to toe the line between I'm going to take this material really seriously and it not getting so oppressively dark and grim that, uh, that, it, that it sort of spills over into self-parody. Oh, yeah. It's definitely like a really tricky tonal exercise that he pulls off remarkably well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of big ideas, I think that The Dark Knight Rises is a film that engages with some big ideas that um, uh, hit a little bit differently for me rewatching this than it did when I originally saw yeah. it back in 2012. Um, well, it came out in the days of the Occupy movement, and you have the, vil- the villain of Bane who wants to uh, take down all the billionaires in Gotham City and return the city to the people. And, you know, of course, he's a bad guy, so he's going to kill a bunch of people while he's doing it, and Batman must stop this. But, you know, watching it now in, uh, in the current climate, there was a part of me that was like, Let's just hear Bane out a little bit. Let's just, <laughs> let's just see what Bane has to say. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, more, the, more so Catwoman though. More yeah, so Selena sure. Kyle. Yeah, I, I think yeah. she's kind of she a middle ground. She seems downright reasonable. Yeah, she's kind of a middle ground <laughs> between them, and and I think a, a, a pretty sympathetic figure in that respect. Um, you're right that the movie does end. The movie ends with a billionaire leading a bunch of cops against a populist uh-huh. uprising. You know. Yeah. So. Who are explicitly branded in the film as thugs and criminals? Yep. I will yep. say this, the movie was not directly, at least not intentionally directly responding to Occupy because it was no, well it into just production came out around before. the same time. Yeah, it, it was sort of serendipitously timely in that respect and allowed certain, certain I think, certain conservative writers, I remember there's a very infamous uh, Breitbart review of The Dark Knight Rises that celebrates it as anti-Occupy. And mm-hmm. I think thematically in some ways it is vaguely anti-Occupy, it just happens to be accidentally so. 
you know? Right, yeah. Um, you know, we, we made a reference earlier to Frank Miller and the fascism in Batman. And I think in Dark Knight Rises, when it starts to engage with these sort of like bigger ideas about basically how to run a society, um, is when Batman starts to look a little bit more fascist, you know? Like, uh, you see a little bit of this in The Dark Knight with the you whole do. idea where Batman has to take the fall, and that means that he's going to make the decision for everybody. Also, and, there's the whole, there's there's his whole surveillance device that he uses, yep. which, uh, given the timing of that film coming out in 2008... Um, there are certain there are certain unsavory ties to say the the, the Patriot Act and to mm-hmm. uh, to the government's surveillance of U.S. citizens. Um, the movie does kind of end up, even though it has Lucius Fox, the character that Morgan Freeman plays, the kind of cue of the Batman world. Um, even even though it has him sort of as a voice of dissent against it, saying, "I'm going to quit if you use this thing." it still ends up being instrumental in catching the Joker. Um, so the, the politics right. of these films have always been a little dodgy. A little, I guess, a little more conservative or right wing, you could say. Yeah. And um, we were talking about the death of Ra's al Ghul in the first one and how Batman's kind of tying himself in moral knots. He ties himself in moral knots in The Dark Knight by using the device, but then destroying it after using it once. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's okay to use it <laughs> once if your intentions are good. You know, it really does kind if of... If it's the Joker, you can you can violate all of everybody's civil liberties. And that's a theme that does come up again in The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, mm-hmm. Selena Kyle, uh, Cat woman played by Anne Hathaway she brings up you know uh, surveillance and uh, everybody knowing everything that you're up to because of your phones in that film that came out in 2012 when smartphones were becoming uh, beginning to become more ubiquitous totally I do think there's a little bit of dialogue in these films I, I mean I think ultimately they kind of they're actually kind of ambivalent a lot about a lot of their political ideas I, th- I think mm-hmm. that literally having characters voice concerns I think is at least the film's way of trying to cast a shadow of a doubt over uh, over some of um, over some of the more conservative ideas yeah uh, I think when you're looking at a giant blockbuster like this that's been made by a corporation I, I think looking for a coherent political ideology in it it can be a bit of a can be can be can be a bit of a fool's errand, you know. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> but I agree that the yeah, optics, fair. the optics of uh, of it, very least of the ending of this film are not are not wonderful in light of uh, recent events. Well, yeah. it's a perfect example of like intent versus interpretation, right? Yeah. You know, they might not have intended it to read that way. There was no way they could tell the future or what was going to happen in eight years. But eight years later, you watch it and you're like. So Batman's defending the stock market, huh? <laughs> they he comes could, I, out of retirement <laughs> to defend the stock market. Okay. <laughs> I mean, they could. Say, they might not be able to read the future, but they could read the fucking present. I mean, that's you know, true. I mean, it's not like <laughs> it's not like cops weren't bastards in 2012. You know, right? And, and there it, had just been a big bailout of the stock market a few years exactly, earlier. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, um, and that's baked into the character too. To be honest, like we said, yeah. Frank Miller dealt with it long before you know Christopher Nolan started uh, taking over the character. So you know, I don't think it reflects in any way Nolan's personal politics or anything. And you know, like it is what it is. I don't think it's bad. It's just it was just kind of a, like I don't think that like these movies should be condemned because they you know at times kind of flirt with this fascistic idea that you know one guy knows what's best for everybody and the other and everybody else never even needs to know about the decisions that he's making i don't think yeah like 
I'll say this too. I think that Nolan does attempt throughout these films to create a sense, a, a little bit of a dialogue about it too. He has mm-hmm. people who who kind of serve as devil's advocates occasionally. People mm-hmm. who, I mean, Ra- Rachel Dawes, for example, is somebody who, in the first two films, exists to basically challenge Wayne on some of his ideas. She has a scene in The Dark Knight where she's saying we can't put power into one person's hands that basically is fascism and throughout the series and even in the third one once she's gone there's this idea that people keep bringing up that Wayne Mm -hmm. Wayne does not need Alfred brings it up in the third one I think Wayne does not need to put on a suit to help Gotham he's Mm -hmm. he's filthy fabulously rich he could he could he could put he could put money into you know, it's the idea of transforming society instead of beating up criminals, you know. Um, and mm-hmm. I do think that the movies at least graze that idea in, in as much as you can in a Batman movie. We don't actually want a Batman movie where he doesn't put on a suit and beat people up. That would be very boring. <laughs> right, exactly. You've got all these elements at play. You've got, uh, you know, the the demands of a blockbuster where it cannot be, a, you know, a, yeah. what a, a Jean-Luc Godard film that yeah. engages very seriously with serious philosophical ideas. It's a blockbuster action movie at its core, but it does acknowledge it and it does have those sort of counterbalance characters, like you said. And, the, and, and usually how they do it is towards the beginning of the movie, uh, Bruce Wayne will be out somewhere uh, at dinner with people and they'll be discussing the Batman. <laughs> yes, there's, there's, a dinner, there's like a dinner table discussions about Batman that come up yes. throughout the series yeah yes it's a, yeah it happens in the second two movies at least yeah, yeah. um I, w- I will say that this one has grown on me a little um mm-hmm. i remember being pretty disappointed with it when it came out i went so i went to the midnight of it and feeling that it was just it was kind of bloated and uh and overstuffed and it felt to me more self-important than the previous film i know that was a mm-hmm. that was kind of a complaint people have had about all of nolan's batman films but it actually started to stick with me a little bit with with rises which just mm-hmm. right i mean the, the last 45 minutes of of the dark knight rises is just relentless and i think it, it does get a little tiring um but i do the, the film has grown on me some and i think a lot of that just has to do with with uh with its craftsmanship and with the level of ambition I, I do kind of admire nolan for wanting to pay off a lot of the themes he set up he set up in earlier films to really look at this fundamental idea of batman as a symbol and as a concept and uh I mean, there's the other unifying factor, which is that the, all of these films have been about the idea of Gotham and can you mm-hmm. sa- can you save a city? Can you save a society that's become as decadent as, uh, you know, by implication, America itself? I, I think he right. is trying to grapple with those ideas. Well, what's interesting about, you know, you said you talked about dragging a little bit. Uh, rewatching it, this movie didn't drag as much for me as it did the first time I saw it. Okay. I found it pretty engaging beginning to end. I had a, I had a, you know, no trouble. I didn't really check my watch throughout the whole movie and it's two hours 40. Um, I think for me... Uh, my biggest thing with it was that when you put the Batman voice next to a villain with a silly voice, <laughs> whew, it just starts getting a little too comic booky for the Dark Knight trilogy, to be honest. Like, there's a certain level of comic bookiness that just doesn't fit with the overall tone of the thing. I don't know. I think that Hardy is, is scary as Bane. I do. Okay. Um, in a much different way than, than Ledger was scary as Joker. Um, I mean, I, he can beat your ass like he's very muscular <laughs> and just the level the level of kind of um of occasionally quiet intimidation because i mean mm. the joker is this even even nolan's version of the joker is a very big character and it's funny bane is big i think physically but he's he he's not a character who uh 
for a lot of the movie, he's he's kind of scary calm. I mean, we meet him mm-hmm. in the first scene when he when he uh, when he deliberately crashes the plane to set his plan into motion, and um, the voice is silly in its own way, but it's also distinctive. I mean, I, I yeah, I, I can't. I don't think I've ever heard a villain in a movie sound the way that he sounds. Uh-huh. Uh, and there's something to be said for that, I think, that he is. Yeah. And people have been doing impressions of it. You know, Gotham is yours for like oh, that was years ubiquitous. Since. Yeah. yeah. And I think but I think partially that's because he has created a, he created a voice for this character that is fundamentally distinctive. Well, I that's a really interesting point you made about comparing Bane with the Joker, because mm-hmm. I think that works on a bunch of different levels, like in terms of characterization and performance and also philosophically. Right. Like, you know, just the Joker being chaos and Bane being basically he's sort of like like a Maoist. He wants to, you know, yeah. he wants a society of peasants. He's a extreme left winger in, in some ways. Yeah. Totally. Yep. Um, I think he he has some very there's some very frightening scenes in the film. I think this, mm-hmm. the scene where he kills Ben Mendelsohn I think is kind of like a, is is a little master class in oh yeah quiet intimidation. Yeah. You know. Oh man, you're winning me over. <laughs> <laughs> just the way that he like sets it. It's just such a physical performance too. And mm-hmm. he like figured out the way this guy should move. The way he he like holds his hands on his coat, and just the, the gesture that he does in that scene where he kills Mendelssohn, where he just puts his hand. It's all it's so intimate. He just puts his hand on his shoulder. And it's so intimidating. And he knows it's over. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, he knows it's over. Um, What's interesting is in this film, I really like the secondary villain. I like Anne Hathaway as a Catwoman. She's really good. I think... Poor Anne Hathaway gets a bad rap, man. I, like she, I think she doesn't. I like all of her performances, and she's really good in this one. Um, she is. Talk about physicality. She keeps doing this. These. Um, I'm. I'm sure there were stunt doubles involved, but she keeps doing this kind of gymnastics move. Yeah. And you, there are some full body shots of her where she does it, and so I don't know how they would fake it. Where she, there's one shot where it's it's a little thing, but she's getting off of the the bat cycle, the motorcycle. Yeah. And she gets off of it by just kind of swinging her foot her leg all the way over in like almost a 360 degree turn and it's like girl how did you do that <laughs> <laughs> yeah she really she she plays up the physicality of catwoman a lot too mm-hmm. um the slinkiness and totally. the, the uh the um flexibility yeah, yeah. Fle- you know yeah makes her a, a, a gymnast this is not a movie that has a ton of Batman and Catwoman scenes, a lot of like action with them. No. But there is one scene that I really enjoy. It's when she's going to take him. Actually, it's 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 a lead up to another what I think is another pretty terrific scene. But the one where she's taking him to find Bane, and they're walking through the sewers, and she is kind of acting as the lure. She'll like mm-hmm. walk around a corner to draw them to draw them to Batman, basically. And the movie has a certain kind of fun that that, that this series in general doesn't necessarily have a lot of where they're you're kind of playing off of the dueling physicalities of these two characters you know yes yes very much so and i think that is uh it does add an element of lightness to this movie but it's also but it's not it again it's a little more self-serious in that it is kind of like slinky and sexy yeah for sure um, yeah. I do think this film has some of the most accomplished action filmmaking that that Nolan mm. has, has has done over the years. I think that he used this almost as an opportunity 
to to do some really large scale action, but also some. I mean, like remember we were complaining last week when we were talking about um, we were talking about following a little bit and Memento, and I was talking about the fact that I don't think for a while Nolan didn't really know how to shoot a fist fight, and it, it yeah, it's honestly still a problem in the Dark Knight. Even there's an early scene uh-huh. in a parking garage where he's beating people up, and it just is not staged in a terribly exciting way. But the fist fight between him and in Bane and the and sewers, Bane? yeah, I mean it's it's pulled right from um, I mean one of one of Nolan's many sources for the Dark Knight Rises is the is the the, the comic book arc Nightfall in the '90s where uh-huh. where Bane broke Batman's back and it was this whole thing where there was a new Batman etc. Uh, but that sequence in the, in the film where they're fighting um, I think is better staged and staged with more clarity than in, than anything than any action scene he had shot maybe before this. And I would say more impact because it looks yeah. really painful. Yes. You know, like you feel <laughs> the the pain, the crunching of the bones and things like that. I totally. think that comes across a lot more in, in that scene than it does in earlier fistfights in the series. Well, and it's upsetting to see Batman lose, you know? I mean, yeah. we, uh, like, I, I, I think But he back, has to. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 re-watching this today, I actually re-watched this today before we recorded, and um, I... I felt a little bit how I felt in uh, Superman 2, one of the earliest comic book blockbusters. In Superman 2, where uh, Clark Kent loses his powers for a little bit and he gets beat up in the bar, and it's so upsetting as a kid to see Superman get beat up. And then it's mm-hmm. obviously very, it's, it's you know, it's super inspiring when he gets his powers back and he can go back and, and, <laughs> and confront the bully. But there's a little bit of that element even in this much more serious film in The Dark Knight Rises. We really get to see Batman taken to his lowest point. So it, it actually is, I felt myself a little flush with uh, kind of an adolescent joy when Batman comes back. And yeah. faces him again, well, you know? And it also fits the sort of thematic and philosophical arc of the series. You know, like this this tension that we were talking about earlier, the sort of political tension between Batman as the lone protector and like the whole society. And it's like, what happens if you take Batman out of the picture? Like he has to be humbled a little bit, yeah. lest he become this fascist dictator. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I really do think that some of the imagery in this is really strong too. I, I, mm-hmm. I, the, the whole sequence where Bane is... Uh, blowing things up around the city, uh, including the football field, is nightmarish in a way that I don't, I don't think this series has. It, it's it's like something the series has not offered before. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I was as much as I find the last forty minutes of this film to be a bit much. I I do have to admire at least on an abstract level the the, the sophistication of the cross cutting, and the way that he is mm-hmm. following three or four different threads at the same time I mean that, that, that'll that become a mark of Nolan's work obviously it, the, the most the purest payoff of that is, is Dunkirk but um, it really like the Dark Knight Rises is uh, is sort of an early he's showing what he can do with cross cutting and the degree to which he can keep several lines of action going at the same time mm-hmm. but I mean that like that I definitely agree with you on a scene to scene level, but mm-hmm. the the sort of chronology uh, passage of time issues that we were talking about up top that I noticed them the most in the Dark Knight Rises. Yeah. Where it was like, wait, how much time has passed? Wait, yeah, w- what? He's been gone how long? And then what? And like, how much time passed between different you know uh, plot beats and things like that is pretty unclear in this movie. 
It is, I think. Um, I will say mostly that the, the the events that happen in Gotham are supposed to take place over five months or so. I don't know if they mm-hmm. ever quite feel like five months, although I, I'll it say that... It goes from not snowing to snowing is the clearest indication of how long it's been. Yeah, I guess that basically. makes sense. I, and, and, and Nolan films are always kind of... He always he has a tendency, I think, to... Uh, his, his One of the reasons his movies move so much, I think, is that they're always threatening to become a montage. You know, <laughs> and, and Dark Knight Rises, I think, gives into that the most of any of the films where it's like at a certain point, we are just seeing a very long montage. <laughs> and even the Dark Knight for how good it is, you know, uh, like I was talking about, a lot of it is just going from like action scene, to action scene, to action scene, to action scene. So it does sort of have that element to it as well. Yeah. So, Dad, I'm assuming that you and I will have the same uh, ranking for these three films. Uh, so the Dark Knight. I would probably go Batman Begins over The Dark Knight Rises. What would you say? See, I actually, I do disagree with you on that. I think, oh. I think uh, having rewatched it, I think I might put Rises ahead of Batman Begins. Interesting. Um, yeah, I felt, I like the tone of Batman Begins a little better, but yeah. I think Dark Knight Rises is a better action movie. Yeah. For me, Begins is just, uh, so much of it feels like protracted setup, and that's the origin story problem in general. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Um, I think that Nolan was still figuring out how to make a movie like that. I think I think that you're right that it's perfectly slick and competent and, and gets the job done, but I think that he had not figured out a way to put his personal signature on one of these things at that point. It's actually one of the mm-hmm. least Nolan-ish of any of Nolan's films, and I think by the time The Dark Knight Rises came along, I mean, you could almost say that it's Nolan to a fault in some respects. <laughs> like, it's more interested in being a Christopher Nolan film than a Batman film in some ways. Um, but... Ultimately, I, I having having rewatched The Dark Knight Rises not just today but in bits and pieces on HBO over the years, just <laughs> always catching a little bit of it on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think it's better than I initially thought it was. Um, but we can agree oh, that definitely. the middle one's the best. <laughs> well, yeah, like that's a really a weird, we were talking off mic before the taping, and I was like, yeah, that's a really difficult position to argue with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There is something, though, about Batman Begins and just the sort of, like, project that he's embarking on there mm-hmm. of, like, the stripping away the layers of campy comic bookness from the character. There's something about that as an uh, experiment in filmmaking that I dig. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, Dark Knight Rises did cut, exceed my expect or uh, exceed my impression uh, the watching it again this time around. But I, I honestly think that might have been kind of inevitable that a lot of people were a little bit let down by the yeah. Dark Knight Rises because how do you top the dark knight it's a, it's a, it's a high bar to clear and uh, mm-hmm. particularly for something that became such a phenomenon and i might even go as far to say though that that although the dark knight rises was made for the biggest screen possible i mean obviously it was designed to be seen on an imax screen that's how i saw mm-hmm. it um, I think it might actually play a little bit better on TV, where it's a little bit less overwhelming. And um, I do think the ability... I don't normally make this case about movies, which I generally generally think benefit most from being seen in one sitting. But uh, sure. having watched The Dark Knight Rises in pieces over the years, uh, I do think it, 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 it actually is uh, deceptively uh, suitable for catching some of it on TV, because there are so many highlights in it. That is a rare endorsement from you, indeed. Yeah, I don't normally say that, but I do think that it, 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 it just with with the number of, of striking images in it and the number of sequences that work on their lonesome, even if the whole is a little 
is a little messier than the other films. I, I do think this is one that that can sustain being seen out of order and being watched in parts here and there, you know? And there's something very Christopher Nolan about that, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's all we've got for you this week on the Dark Knight trilogy. All three of those films are streaming on HBO Max if you'd like to revisit them. In the meantime, please rate, review, and subscribe to Film Club wherever you get your podcasts. This week's episode of Film Club was hosted by me, Alex Dowd, and by Katie Reif. It was produced and edited by Carl Blumberg. Our sound mixer and finishing editor is Seth Hafer, and our motion graphics designer is Julie Mullins. And please join us next week for the third part in our Christopher Nolan series. We'll be talking about the two films Nolan made on either side of Batman Begins, his work-for-hire remake of the Norwegian thriller Insomnia, and his passion project about dueling magicians, The Prestige. Thanks for listening. See ya! See ya!